This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Whatever negative thing that you see about yourself or any error or liability or disadvantage that you see, something that you normally would want to gloss over, what if you swung the pendulum and assumed that it was a strength instead, that it was actually an asset, that it was actually a feature. Welcome to The Real Reel, where I take you behind the Instagram reel and into the real lives of entrepreneurs, content creators, and anyone who inspires me and may inspire you too. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Real Podcast. It's your host, Natalie Barbu, and I'm coming to you from Miami. And I have never been as happy to say that because I'm going to talk about what happened this week. Last weekend, I went to Houston, and I've never been to Houston before. So it was my very first time, but it was actually unintentionally my third time in Texas this year. So I've been to Texas like every single month this year. Or actually, no, I went once in January and twice in March. So I've been spending a lot of time in Texas, which it's not a place that I usually go to. But this year, you know, I've just been traveling there and I do like it. But I don't know. I like the East Coast a lot better, but it's fun. It's fun to travel there. It's fun to see new cities and kind of see how other people live. And Houston was definitely interesting. I thought that it was kind of similar to Oklahoma City, but much, much bigger. But that was kind of like the vibe I got because if you guys didn't know, Keon used to live in Oklahoma City. So we would do long distance and I would visit him a lot in Oklahoma City. So that's why I am very familiar with OKC. So it kind of gave me that vibe, but just a lot more people and a lot bigger, but like same look and feel to it. So that's how it was. It wasn't, I wasn't there for long. I was only supposed to be there for like 48 hours. Like I flew in on Thursday afternoon and then was supposed to leave on Saturday afternoon. And this is where the eventful week comes in. So we get to the airport. And if you guys know me, I don't get to the airport early. I get to the airport exactly an hour, maybe 45 minutes before my flight leaves. And I've just always been like that. I just don't like waiting at the airport. I want to be able to go grab my coffee and go directly to my seat. I don't want to wait around. And so I usually get there with 45 to an hour before. I do have TSA pre-check. So it usually takes me like five minutes to get through security. But anyways, this time I got there early because we just thought like, okay, let's just get there early, whatever. Keon doesn't have pre-check, all this stuff. So we went to the Houston airport, got there two hours before our flight. And we get on the plane. Everything's fine. Like we're boarding. We're on the plane. We're in the seat. We're leaving the gate. You know, we're kind of like on the tarmac, but in line to take off. And then all of a sudden they tell us that Miami has some bad traffic. And so we can't take off yet until like they clear the traffic in Miami. And so we're like, okay, whatever. Like I didn't really mind. Then they're like, okay, guys, it's going to be another hour. If you guys want to get off, you can, because we don't know what's going on. I didn't want to get off the plane. I was like, I was doing work. I was editing a video. I was like, I'm just going to stay on the plane. There was a charger there. Like everything was fine. And then afterwards they were like, actually, everyone needs to get off because this flight is canceled. And our flight got canceled in Houston. And I was so upset because Miami weather was fine. Houston weather was fine. I didn't really understand why they were canceling our flight, but apparently there was some bad weather like north of Florida, which was causing 
traffic in Miami. I, I don't really know what happened, but a ton of flights were getting canceled. And so our flight got canceled and they didn't put us on a flight until tomorrow morning. So until Sunday morning, which was just so frustrating because I did not want to spend another day in Houston. No offense, but I was ready to be back in Miami. And so I'm going, I'm trying to figure out like, can we get another flight? Like, is there anything else? All of these flights to Miami are getting canceled on every single airline. American Airlines isn't really helping. So I go to the American Airlines counter. We wait in line for like an hour. It felt like forever. Um, so we're waiting in line for an hour. I'm like, can you please at least book us a hotel? Because uh, hello, like you canceled our flights. And they said, no, they can't book a hotel because if it's due to weather, then like they're not responsible for any food or accommodations or anything, which was really, really frustrating. So I had to wait at the Houston airport for an entire day. And it was just like, I just wanted to be back. And so we got the 7 a.m. flight. So we were on the plane at 7 a.m. So had an early morning, which was at least nice. So we could leave as soon as possible. But the flight before then at 5.30 a.m. was getting canceled. And then the flight right after at 11 a.m. was canceled to Miami. So I was like, oh my God, this flight's going to get canceled too. But thankfully it took off. So that was kind of my eventful weekend. And a lot of people DM me and they were like, this is why I never fly American. But I was looking at all of these other airlines and they all pretty much have the same exact policies. I like I always fly American and I never, ever have any issues with them because I do fly to like American hubs like Charlotte is one of the American Airlines hubs, but I never have an issue with them until this weekend. But I'm like, I don't know if it, if it were any other airline, if if I wouldn't have had that same issue because all the flights were getting canceled. So thankfully, we landed in Miami on Sunday. And that was that. But thankfully, it was also Sunday because if it was Monday and it was a work day and I had to throw off my whole work day, I would have been really, really upset. So I'm very happy that it was a Sunday that that was happening. But anyways, that was kind of how that weekend went. So I would say that my high is being in Miami and the low was getting that flight pushed back and delayed and canceled. And it was just kind of a really annoying travel day. So yeah, that was definitely, I would say, the low of my week. But anyways, that is not what today's episode is about. It's not travel stories. It's not anything like that. Today, I am interviewing Wes, who is the co-founder of Maven, and I am so excited to share this interview. She is actually one of my like inspirations. I follow her on Twitter. She's kind of Twitter famous, but she's amazing, and she is someone that I definitely look up to. So Wes is the co-founder of Maven, which is the first platform for cohort-based courses. Maven helps creators build cohort-based course and it delivers an incredible student experience at scale. I have so many classes that I want to take on Maven and there's one actually who I follow, Amanda Getz, who is the CEO and founder of House of Wise. If you don't know what it is, it's amazing. It's these like CBD gummies, but she's like one of my favorite people to follow as well. And I definitely want to have her on the podcast because she is based in Miami. But anyways, that's a side note. She's hosting a class on Maven and I desperately want to take it. Like it looks so good. It's all about building community at scale and without like paid marketing. And I think it would be so helpful for Ella. So it was just great. Like I, I, when I saw that she was creating it on Maven, I was like, oh my God, this is so fitting because this episode is coming out this week. So yeah, Maven helps build cohort Based courses. And there are courses in everything from crypto, product management, leadership, coding, audience building, and a ton more. And previously, Wes was the co-founder of the Alt MBA. And under her leadership, the Alt MBA grew from zero to 550 cities in 45 countries. Can you talk about someone that knows how to run a company? Her work has been published in Fast Company, Inc., and Entrepreneur, and she guest lectures at UC Berkeley and Harvard. And yes, I want her resume when I'm older. Before Maven, she worked at Gap, actually, in San Francisco. 
and she was in retail management and gives a lot of credit to them for helping develop business fundamentals. She moved to New York City to work with Seth Godin, which kicked off her journey into the creator space, and she believes that life is 50% preparedness and 50% serendipity, which can we get an amen because I totally believe in this too and we definitely dive into this and I think that you guys are going to love this episode and it's one of those episodes where you might want to take notes you might want to listen to it a second time depending on the stage of life that you're in but it's really really good when I was asking her about Maven and kind of how she came up with the idea she was telling me that she is the ideal customer for her own company so she was waiting for someone to create something like Maven since she couldn't believe that it didn't exist so she decided to make it herself which is a very similar story to why I created Rella. Maven is teaching creators how to create a successful course, how to download ideas, how to create workshops, course market fit, and create a landing page and she believes in fostering community learning environments that are bi-directional and has heard from Maven teachers that they learn from their students, which is very different than conventional education. And it's also different than any other thing that you're kind of like watching a course without being able to actually respond and kind of interact with that professor or teacher or whoever is like teaching the class. So in today's episode, we dive into how to foster a loyal community and encourage bi-directional learning, why your spiky point of view could help your brand and make you stand out, and ways to reframe your mindset and turn bugs into features, which is probably my favorite quote from this episode, and also the future of the creator economy. I know you're going to love this episode because I'm about to re-listen to it, and I never listen to my podcast, but this one I recorded a really long time ago, and I am re-listening to it because it's actually really, really, really good for the stage of life that I'm in and it really helped me when I was actually speaking to Wes so I'm excited to re-listen on my own too and of course if you guys do enjoy this episode please be sure to rate it five stars on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify you can rate it five stars now and also recommend it to your friends share it with a friend that might want to listen to this share it on your story make sure to tag me and Wes as well and check out Maven for sure anyways let's get into this episode Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today as it should with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet. Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard-earned cash when I need it most. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type Real Real under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. 
Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz. And take it from me, I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Eras tour for like the third time. You know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream. It is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? It is the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon violet and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection up to 400 50 degrees, reduces inner pair split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration, and according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz-free up your schedule with Way. Go to theouai.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's theouai.com, promo code RealReal. Hi, Wes. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Hey, Natalie. Great to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I feel like we have a lot of similarities, which I'm really excited to dive into. And I'm also excited just to hear more about what you're doing, kind of your background. But before we get into that, I always start my podcast with setting the record straight. So it's some assumptions, some stereotypes, and you'll let me know if they're true or false. Ooh, I like that. All right, let's do it. So we'll get into it. The first one is that it is hard to be different or unique on the internet. I would say yes, but easier than it used to be. Mm -hmm. And why do you say it's easier now than it used to be? I think there are micro communities everywhere in the long tail. And it's easier than ever to find other people who are weird like you, as I like to call it. Um, I think the internet is an amazing place to find people who are weird like you. So Mm -hmm. I think being able to find where your people are, being able to connect with them, that's easier than it's ever been. But I still think that if you have ideas that are unpopular with the zeitgeist at the moment, that there's kind of a a certain acceptable range for being contrarian. And then if you're too contrarian, people are like, whoa, like that's too much or that's, you know, we don't agree with that and they might come after you. So I think it it kind of depends on the spectrum. Yeah, I agree though. Like there's a niche for everything now. Like it, it could be the most random niche. And I think TikTok, made that a lot more popular because you'll be on like a certain type of TikTok and then that's like all you see. And so it just feels so much more normal if you're seeing it all the time and then you feel more comfortable sharing like your unique traits or like things that you find interesting that you didn't think other people related to and then you find that community there. So I agree with you. I do think it's a lot easier now to to be more unique. And the next one is creators run their own business. Yes, absolutely. As a creator- you are your brand and being able to protect that brand, protect your reputation, be the kind of brand that other people want to work with that allows you to, to share your message to the world. 
Um, I absolutely think that creators are our brands mm-hmm. and run their own business. Yeah, I agree. I think that a lot of times, in at least in the past, it used to be like a hobby and it used to be, you know, okay, I'm just posting random videos. So I to give you a backstory. I started on YouTube in 2011. So it's been 10 years. Wow, early. Long time ago. And I was doing it not as a business or a brand then. Like it truly was just, I'm bored and I want to post videos online because I like watching them. And so I was doing like makeup tutorials and like little like girly types of videos. I was 15 at the time. And it was, it was not a brand. It was not a business. But over time I realized, okay, no, this can actually be a business. You have to start treating it like one. And it, it can be a full-on business that you're kind of running on your own. So I feel like now in 2022, people are seeing it more as a business and like people are viewing creators as, as entrepreneurs. Rather, when I started, it was not the case at all. <laughs> it took a while to get there. Totally. Yeah. I think the creator economy and just the, the burgeoning movement of more and more people either having side hustles or turning their creator work into their full-time work is really, really amazing. Because I think five, six years ago, the creator economy was not a thing. And if you said you were a creator, people pretty much thought that you were in between jobs and right, like kind of trying to figure things out for yourself. And they kind of felt a little bit sorry for you. So the fact that you can make a living writing a Substack newsletter, six figures, multiple six figures, you know, from writing a newsletter, being a YouTuber, you know, being on Instagram, I think it's, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think I love the shift. It's funny because I've seen it when people were, you know, kind of like making fun of me and like thinking it was weird. And then now it's like, oh my God, that's so awesome. And I'm like, I've been doing the same thing the whole time, but I'm glad that your opinion has changed about it. So (laughs) it's funny seeing that. Um, And then the last one is that everyone can be a content creator. Yes, I definitely agree there. I have a little bit of a caveat, which is I personally sometimes struggle with switching between being an operator and being a content creator. And I think even if you're a full-time content creator, you're still running parts of your own business. You're queuing up your content, you're planning your calendar, you're working with affiliates potentially, you're figuring out sponsorships, you're figuring out you know how to monetize. So all those operational aspects, I find it sometimes hard to switch between that mode and creative writing, content producing, thinking about the narrative arc of the next thing that I want to make solving creative, creative content problems. For me, it's just two different parts of my brain. So yeah, now that I'm a full-time founder working on Maven, I haven't had as much time to create content as I would like, as I was before when I was consulting. So that is definitely a tension that I felt. I don't know if you've, if you've ever felt the same. Yeah. So I just started a startup about a year ago. We've been working on building it and it's in the creator economy as well. And it's like an all-in-one place for influencers to run their business and like to organize kind of like a project management tool for influencers essentially. And so it's been really difficult for me being the founder of that and like working on building that and building our team and like marketing that and, you know, helping operate that. And then also focusing on my own brand. And because I post on YouTube twice a week and I like posting on Instagram and I, you know, I'm trying to get into TikTok and it's like, I've neglected some of that now because, you know, I'm working on Rella, which is my company's name. And so it's been so hard for me to find that balance. It's so difficult for me to find it. I'm like, wait, I'm creating this for content creators like myself and something that I need. And then I'm like neglecting it completely. I'm like, no, no, no. I need to so find ironic. some sort of balance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so the past year has been a struggle, but I'm, I'm hopeful in 2022 that it's going to be 
hopefully easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm curious to know, what did you do before Maven? So what was kind of your backstory? Were you always in the creator economy? Did you always want to be an entrepreneur or what was kind of like your, your career path before that? I always wanted to be in marketing. So uh, my first role out of college was working at Gap Inc. in San Francisco, doing a rotational program uh, called the Retail Management Program. So I rotated between Gap, Old Navy, Banana Republic, and learned the core retail functions ranging from supply chain management to merchandising, marketing, inventory management. Um, And a lot of the fundamentals that I learned at the time, I still use today. So I credit Gap with, um, with, with helping me develop really strong business fundamentals. Um, and I also, you know, one thing that, you know, when I look back in the past 15 years, I've gone from bigger companies to increasingly smaller companies. So Gap, L'Oreal started there and then went to an advertising tech company in SF backed by Sequoia Capital. And, you know, then kind of took a big leap out of the blue to pack up my bags into six suitcases and moved across country to New York to work with Seth Godin. And so that really kicked off kind of my journey into the creator space, which at the time wasn't even, I don't think the term creator economy uh, was, was really popular back then in 2014, but, you know, freelancers, you know, people, small business owners, people kind of doing their own thing, content creators. I literally didn't know that that world existed. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, I had a pretty narrow view of what success meant. And I wanted to be a VP at a beauty or retail company by 30. And I was going to, I was going to bend over backwards to make it happen. And along the way, realize that, okay, you know, maybe there are other ways to define success. And I'm really glad that I, that I opened up my definition of, of what my career could look like, because so much of what I've done since then has been a mix of 50% preparedness from sharpening my craft along the way and 50% serendipity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being open to serendipity when an interesting opportunity comes up, being able to look for opportunities where I feel like I have a unique unfair advantage to solve that particular problem. That's really what my guiding light is, is now. Um, And when starting Maven, that was really a big factor too. I've always thought if a random person off the street could start this business, if they worked as hard as I did, I should probably not start that business. Um, I should do something where where I feel like there's something about my personality, about my my background, about my skill set, orientation, posture, whatever it might be, where I feel like I'm uniquely s- suited to solve this particular problem. And so with core-based courses, that was my obsession for the past five, six years before starting Maven. Seth Godin and I started the Alt MBA in 2014, 2015 which really kicked off this entire category of core-based courses and inspired a whole slew of the early core-based courses that are on the market. And now we're seeing this huge explosion that, that Maven is contributing to. But when Gagan Biani, my co-founder, he also co-founded um, Udemy before co-founding Maven, when we started Maven, we didn't have to do customer development in the traditional sense because the past five years of my life were living our customers' problems with, you know, wrangling a bunch of tools, trying to make core-based courses work, staying up late at night, trying to change the color of a link or change the margins on my landing page for my course or troubleshoot a zap that all of a sudden stopped working. And just that that technical headache and the stress that came with it was so real. And I'd seen it at the Alt MBA um, and with, with other creators that I worked with afterwards. So for us, solving that problem 
made a lot of sense and felt very natural. So that's kind of a high level recap of 15 years ago to today. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really interesting because your path isn't necessarily, you know, one that is that, oh, I had this dream from when I was 15 years old. Like you said, you wanted to be the VP of a beauty company and like things changed. And like you went from working to like huge corporations to, you know, smaller, smaller companies until you founded your own, which I think is cool. And also saying that you were like that ideal customer that, that's why you created Maven. Is that something you recommend for other, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs or founders is find something that you have a pain point in or, you know, look for a business opportunity, like, and, and see if you're the one to build it and go for it. Like what's kind of your approach with when it comes to finding something that you're passionate about or finding something that you can really like take the reins and own like you did with Maven? I think there are two schools of thought, two camps here. Um, I've seen a lot of people advocate for um, starting a business where you're the customer and Mm -hmm. you personally feel the problems. And I've also heard a lot of people do the opposite that, you know, there might be a problem that you want to solve. You're not that target customer, but you can empathize with them and you can build for them. So I think either works. I think it depends on your personality and what you are personally excited by right? I think so much of advice comes down to, does this apply to my personal situation? Because mm-hmm. if I say like, okay, you don't have to be the target, your target customer. You can, you can, you know, create a business solving problems for someone that you, you know, you're not in that demographic or psychographic. And then you try doing that and you're not motivated by it. And you feel disconnected from what you're building. It's hard for you to relate to your customer. It's hard for you to, to put yourself in their shoes. Then it's not going to work. So I think whichever one sounds more exciting, do that Mm -hmm. because you're going to need a lot of that, that excitement and internal fortitude to kind of make it work over the long haul, because there's going to be challenges either way. Like whichever path you choose, there's going to be hiccups and unexpected things and everything takes longer than you think. That's one of my mantras. (laughs) Everything takes longer than you think, whether it is an errand running to the bank or building a company or doing anything, any project, in my experience, it always takes longer than you think, especially if you're doing it for the first time. And if you're creating something new, you are solving problems that other people haven't solved in that way in this space and time until now. Mm -hmm. So buffering enough time for yourself to tackle things that will pop up and adding enough buffer for yourself with emotional labor to make sure that this is something that you want to fight for and, and are excited enough to want to want to really work for. I think that makes the journey a lot easier. Oh yeah. I mean, I think if you're just doing something because you think it's going to make you a lot of money or you think you're going to like be successful really quickly, one, like you said, it takes longer than you think. So you're in it for a long haul. And also I just, that momentum is not going to last. You know, your drive for money and success is not going to last if you don't enjoy what you're doing. Because I think it's so much harder than, you know, just working at a company or working under someone when you're the one that needs to make all the decisions and you're the one that needs to, you know, take control and like shape the future and the vision of the company. You have to have passion behind it or else it's going to show and you're not, you're honestly probably not going to take it to to where you think that it's going to go. So I agree with you with that. Like, I don't think necessarily you need to be a customer of it, but I think you have to have a lot of passion, excitement, and empathy, like you said. And I want to know, it was Maven a light bulb idea for you? Was it something that you're like, oh my God, why is this not a thing? Or was it something that kind of like slowly came together in your head? And when did you decide to actually like jump ship and start it and start like a legit company around it? 
I would say it was kind of a, a slow build in many ways. I think the main reason for starting Maven was over the past five years with building core-based courses before starting Maven, I was shocked that no one else had built a product for core-based courses yet. I kept waiting for someone <laughs> to build it because I was like, this is hard and annoying and a slog. And I would like there to be a tool where I'm not balancing literally nine different platforms and stitching it all together. And, you know, I was surprised that, that no one else was tackling it. And so when Gog and Biani got back in touch with me, you know, we actually went to high school together and college together. So Ooh, what um, a small world. we grew up in the same city. Yeah. Super <laughs> random. And uh, yeah. So, so when he got back in touch, he had just gotten back from being on sabbatical for three years, traveling the world after he had shut down his last company in SF and he had gone back, you know, into the thick of things was thinking about starting another company in education. And he was talking to a bunch of people about this new type of live community driven course. And everyone that he talked to said that uh, he should talk to me. And he was like, I already know Wes, I'm just going to send her a text and, you know, and we'll catch up. And so, you know, we hopped on, on a couple calls and um, we were kind of giving each other advice at first. You know, I was, I was giving him advice about core-based courses and the category and uh, the target customers of, you know, instructors, creators, trying to build courses, challenges that I've seen, patterns. And he was giving me some advice about my consulting practice. Cause at the time I was working directly with creators and wanting to grow my practice. And eventually we were just like, these calls have been really fun and our skill sets are pretty good match. Do we want to start something together? And at first I was like, no, like I had just, you know, I had just left really intense period at Alt MBA working with Seth Godin. I was liking the freedom of being a creator, setting my own schedule, mm. doing the projects that I wanted to do, working with the clients I wanted to work with, getting to share my ideas with the world. And the idea of giving up that freedom and flexibility was really tough because I really enjoyed the life that I had built but it, it was just too good of a fit of an opportunity to pass up. The fact that I had personally felt these problems and was working with a bunch of clients who could totally use our platform and Goggin and my skill set, the timing of the market, all of these factors kind of coming together felt really right. And, and that's how we decided, all right, let's go ahead and do it. And that was just about a year ago now. Wow. I, I, for some reason, thought it was more than a year ago. That's crazy. Where is Maven today? Like, what's the stage of Maven today? Is it out for everyone to use? Are you in like a public beta or? We're in a private beta right now. So we will launch publicly probably later this year. But right now we're inviting creators onto the platform in batches. And, uh, and the way that we invite creators on is through a three-week course, core-based course that I teach because we're eating our own dog food yeah. um, <laughs> called Maven Course Accelerator. So we actually just kicked off yesterday to 50 some um, new creators. And basically creating a court-based course is still um, a pretty new format for a lot of creators. You know, the dominant form of, of online learning was evergreen on-demand courses for the past 10 years, MOOCs, mm -hmm. as they're otherwise called, massive open online courses. Um, so the, the courses that you see on LinkedIn Learning, Udemy, Skillshare, basically pre-recorded courses. And so core-based courses are, are still relatively new and we want to teach creators how to create a successful course, how to put together their curriculum, how to download all the ideas in their head from their area of expertise to creating workshops where they can actually teach their students, 
thinking about course market fit, making sure you're the right person teaching the right course at the right time, at the right price point to the right audience, putting together your landing page. So that's the way that we're, we're bringing on different creators. It's completely free. And it's been really great because we've been able to learn a lot from the creators that we're working with in smaller batches and, and have that inform our product. So we have real users who are shaping um, and letting us know what they want to see more of and what parts of our tool are most useful, what they're struggling with. And we have firsthand knowledge and data points into that. And yeah, so far we've worked with over a hundred different instructors who have launched over a hundred different cohorts of their courses. Over 20 some creators have done over $10,000 in a single cohort. We've had a bunch of creators also do 250,000 in a single cohort. Some of our bigger VIP creators with bigger audiences. So it's really amazing to see creators have this other channel to monetize and give back to their community. Yeah. And so with these cohorts, are the creators teaching courses about, you know, how to be a content creator or what are some of the things that they're they're teaching their community or what are some of the things, the, the courses that you've seen that work really well on Maven? Because I know you focus a lot, obviously, on content creators giving back to their community, which I love. And I think that it's such a good idea. And I community is everything now on social media. It's not just about like your followers. It's about who's engaged, who's loyal, who, you know, finds value from you. So I'm a huge believer in that. But what are some of the courses that you've seen are most popular on Maven so far? Yeah. So crypto courses are very popular. Pomp. Um, Anthony Pompliano has a crypto course that he's run multiple cohorts of. He started last year and that has a, a thriving community. You know, Bitcoin crypto folks tend to tend to really congregate. So yeah. <laughs> and product management, Lenny Rochitsky, he was an early product manager at Airbnb and he created a course helping junior product managers get promoted to, to being a, a mid-level product manager. And his course is really popular. We have a course by Shivani Berry called Ascend. It's a leadership program for women in tech. There are non-business courses too. So we have a course on photography, design, watercolor painting. We have some language courses. We have some technical courses too. Coding, software development, audience building, uh, is another one, Sahil Bloom and Demand Curve have a course on how to grow your, your audience online. We have a power writing course from Sean Puri, and it's all about how to write for the, the internet digital age, uh, whether you want to be great at, at uh, tweet threads or growing your newsletter or writing great landing pages. How do you write for, for um, a, an internet first audience? So yeah, tons of different topics from a bunch of different verticals. And these are live, live courses, right? It's live. You get to interact mm -hmm. with the community and the, and the creator that's teaching these courses, right? Exactly. Yes. So I think it's interesting because now, I mean, you have such specific courses and such specific niches, kind of going back to what we were saying, even in the beginning, like there's a niche for everyone nowadays, like how to write for the digital age. You know, that's something that I feel like not many people in general would care about, but that niche that is going to be care about that is going to be so loyal and like signing up for that cohort the second it comes becomes available. And like, they're going to be following the instructor for a long period of time. Um, maybe one of their most like loyal community members. And so I think that, do you think that these will eventually kind of maybe not replace like, college education or higher education, but do you think that these will have the power to like 
be supplemental to, you know, higher education and kind of maybe have like, Hey, I've, I've taken this cohort with this expert, like this amazing professor, if you will. Um, I've learned so much from this. This is what I've, I've, I've done with this. You know, do you think that eventually it's going to kind of be like an additional course that you can take to even like land jobs and, you know, put on your resume and things like that? Oh yeah. That's already happening with Pomp scores. For example, he has a job board, um, that's connected to his course. And on the last day of his course, they have recruiters and HR leaders from different companies come in from Coinbase and, you know, and other crypto companies who come and recruit from his students. Wow. Yeah. So it's pretty incredible. And we're seeing that with other courses too. So this idea that you can, as an operator, as a professional supplement your learning and your professional development along the way is definitely already happening. I think the whole idea that you do most of your your structured learning K through 12 and then and then higher education in college or you know with masters and then kind of have to piece together articles, blog posts, mm-hmm. watch YouTube videos to piece together continuing education for yourself to sharpen your craft and stay relevant, I think is just super weird. Um, and so now now it feels like this is this is what always should have been that if you yeah. are a design professional um, and you've been an operator for um, eight, 10 years, and you want to meet other advanced design professionals, you can take a court-based course where you meet other people from Adobe or from Shopify or uh, Deloitte or, um, or Everlane. Uh, and, and you're all designers. You're all senior designers or design directors taking this course together and you're sharpening your craft together. You are mm-hmm. designing things, critiquing each other's work, getting feedback, um, expanding your network, meeting each other. Um, that to me feels like what, what, you know, continuing education has been waiting for. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing so much interest on the student side with so many professionals being excited to take these courses. Cause before you would have had to kind of piece everything together yourself and you could have learned it, but it's just a lot more work for someone who's, who's, you know, already working full-time and already really busy. So the fact that you can take a course for three days a week, two, three weeks, some courses are longer. So, you know, four to six weeks and kind of tap into a ready-made community where there is content and there's people that are there that are, you know, of a similar level, like-minded people. There are TAs to support. There are topics for you to, to debate and talk about and, and critique each other on. It really brings a whole other level of rich learning for um, for high performing professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know you work a lot, obviously, with the content creators that are creating these courses. And so, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are aspiring content creators, or they are content creators themselves. You've seen firsthand the community that people can build and how powerful that community is. What are some of your tips with how you can build a community as a content creator? Because there's one thing of just posting content online, and there's another thing of having that like loyal following and loyal communities. Do you have any tips for that? I think the two way dialogue is one of the things that differentiates an audience from a community. So if we apply that concept to courses, so if you look at teachable Udemy courses that are basically a series of videos, those are one directional. It's an expert sage on stage who is lecturing at you really. And you're this passive audience member who is listening and taking notes. And you know it's, it's super one directional. And that actually, you know, if you, if you think about college K through 12, like a lot of that, that sage on stage model is the dominant form, which hasn't been great for creating a sense of community necessarily. 
So on the flip side, if you look at more community-driven learning environments, there's a bi-directional posture where, yes, the instructor, the expert is sharing what they know and creating the sandbox for everyone to, to get together, but students are also teaching each other. The students that are there are passionate about the topic. They're all you know, usually of a, of a similar level. And so they're learning from each other, not just from the instructor. And a lot of times they're teaching the instructor. So mm-hmm. Lee Jin was a venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz who left and has her own firm now. She has a Maven course about the creator economy. She coined the term passion economy and her courses for operators who work at creator economy companies and VCs who want to invest in the creator economy. Um, and she said that during and after teaching her course that she actually learned just as much from her students as they did from her. And seeing her students take the frameworks that she taught them and think of edge cases that she hadn't thought of. Think of mm-hmm. examples that she hadn't thought of. Think of ways to invert something that, that she had said and applied in a new way. All of that created new ideas for her that then spurred her to create outlines for, for different essays that she has coming out. And so she was, she was surprised by this. And I hear that a lot from, from our instructors that they're surprised that the, the intellectual stimulation that they get from their community um, I think that is a hallmark of that bi-directional, that bi-directional relationship. You know, you don't get that from, from just an expert sharing in a one-directional way to their audience. You only get that if it's a, a conversation with your community. Right. And I think no matter what type of content you post online, you have to be interactive with the people that are supporting you, with the people that are watching you, with the people that are consuming your content. I think that's why like reality TV shows, for example, Yes, they're very entertaining and people, you know, like to watch them, but I don't think celebrities have like the cult community that creators have as even if they have like smaller numbers, like you can have a hundred thousand subscribers or followers or whatever it is and have feel like you have a much more loyal community than someone who was on like a popular reality show because you're communicating with them. You're answering your messages. You're commenting back. You're, you're asking them what they want to see. And then you're providing that, you know, back to them. And so I think that that is one thing that social media has given so many content creators that we shouldn't take for granted and that you need to start using those things. Like you, it's not enough to just post a pretty photo or to post a, a video that, yeah, it provides value, but like you're not being interactive with your users back to them or with your community back to them. So I think that that's something that I've kind of realized throughout the past 10 years that I've been on the internet. I'm like, that is the most important part is that like responsiveness, that two-way street, which is why... I love podcasts, but I hate that there's no like two-way street with podcasts. You know, it's like, I'm just talking to, you know, my guests, I'm talking to the mic, but there's not like comments on each individual episode. So, you know, that's why I I utilize like um, my Instagram account, you know, and I have like a Slack community and I have, you know, like things like that so that I can actually speak to the people that are listening rather than just having it be like, hey guys, here's a new episode and like radio silence after that. So I do think that that's something that, more and more people need to hear and understand when they're entering the content creation space. And also with that, how do you think you can stand out as a content creator? Because it's one thing to build community, but then what if there's, you know, you feel like there's a lot of other people posting stuff similar to you, or there's other people in your same niche, you know, you're not the only one posting content, like whatever it is you're posting. So what are some ways that you found that creators can actually stick out and, and be unique in what they're doing? One of my frameworks is called spiky point of view. And the idea behind this is that no matter who you are or what you do or what kind of content you create, 
there are almost always hundreds, if not thousands of people who are doing something similar, who have a similar background, who have a similar skill set. And if you want to stand out, you need to offer something a little bit different. So a spiky point of view is a perspective that you have that's rooted in your experience, in your background, in your, in your lived experience um, that can be debated, that's rooted in evidence, but not necessarily you know, fact or you know, the only truth. So one example of a spiky point of view that I have is that most people overemphasize product launches in marketing that you spend mm-hmm. all of this time, all this energy creating for launch day and you throw confetti in the air and it's amazing. And then, you know, there's no plan afterwards. And my point of view is that it's more important to have a long-term consistent plan for how you're going to drive growth, not just put all of your eggs in the basket of launch day. So that's an example of swiky point of view because another marketer, you can ask 10, 10 different marketers, they might come up with 10 different answers. They might say, no, Wes, I disagree. Launch day is more important because all eyes are on the brand. Um, if you have a successful launch day, you'll kick off you know, a domino effect that's really positive and it's going to positively snowball, right? So that's the opposite point of view of, of what I just said. And both views are valid. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are, these are two examples of a spiky point of view. Um, I have another friend who um, is an automation consultant who helps creators automate parts of their businesses, automate emails and connecting landing pages to, you know, to lead magnets to this, to that. And one of his spiky points of view is that creators overemphasize tools that they, they're, you know, always looking for the perfect tool for this or the perfect tool for that. And the tool doesn't matter as much as your strategy behind how you're using that tool and how they connect together. So his whole thing is not, you know, don't care too much about the tool. You're, you're micro-optimizing, reading too many blog posts about comparing WordPress to, to Squarespace, to Wix, to Webflow, you know, when you should just get started and start thinking about the strategy behind what it is that you're doing. So those are just a couple spiky points of view. But if you, you know, if you think about your favorite content creators, most of them have spiky points of view. Like all the people that I follow on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube have a spiky point of view. That is something that other people could disagree with. Other people might even be offended or insulted that, you know, that they would go so far as to say that, you know, anyone can do DIY renovations or something, or that, you know, that they only want to cater to this particular audience or whatever it might be. So yeah, when I think through my feeds, the people that I want to learn from that I want to read their content, they usually have an interesting perspective that makes me think differently. So this is not just about being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. I think that's a super important point to mention. You don't want to just stir the pot just to get a reaction and, and, you know, get people rage commenting. This should be something that you actually believe in and you can actually stand behind. Um, and, and I think people can tell if you're just saying something to get a reaction versus, you know, this is something that you actually believe. So, you know, thinking through what are some of your spiky points of view about your category, about your, your area and starting to jot some of those down. You know, I think the, the ones that you are almost afraid to share because you're afraid that people are going to misunderstand, those can sometimes be the best ones because it starts totally. a conversation. Yep. And I also think with that, like so many people do have the same background and they do have the same, you know, career path or similar to career path. And so you think like, I'm not that different. Like, what am I going to put out there? That's unique. But you have your own life experience. Like you said, you have your own, you know, thought process. You think of things in a certain way that not everyone's going to think of it that way. And so I think I always tell people, you know, 
there are things like you might be an expert to someone that is like a few steps behind you. Doesn't mean that you are the best of the best and you know everything and you're, you know, you're done learning, but you can still share what your experiences have been thus far. And that's going to be helpful to someone who's, you know, a little bit behind a few, a few years behind you or whatever that might look like. Cause I think a lot of people are scared to share their like expertise because they think, uh, who am I to share that? You know, like I'm not an expert in whatever, like if you're an influencer and you're like, well, I don't even have a million followers. Like, how can I share uh, how to become a content creator? But it's like, well, no, you got to where you were. So like you can share that. And people who are a little bit, you know, have, have less subscribers or less followers and you can, can learn something from that. Even if you don't have, you know, 10 million, 5 million, whatever that might look like. So I think it's really similar to that too, that people doubt themselves, I think a lot. And they just look at like their resume pretty much. They're like, oh, well, like, you know, I'm the same as this person, this person, this person, but they don't understand like being yourself as cliche as it is, is actually a selling point. And like, that is what makes you unique because no one is going to have your same thought process, your same life experience, your same, you know, the way that you do certain things and or or your same strategy. So I totally agree that that is what sets you apart. And I also think that like providing value is so important on the internet now because there's so much noise and there's so much stuff. And while you could have a viral video and like get millions of views and whatever, if you're not like providing value long-term, I think that you're not going to develop a strong community and people are going to forget about you because then, you know, it's just like your entertainment for a minute and then, you know, on to the next. So that's another thing I think Maven does a good job at like, finding creators that provide value to their communities. Uh, I, I really liked what you said earlier about creators sometimes feeling self-conscious that they're not expert enough. There's always going to be a bigger fish, always. No matter how big of a fish you are, there's always going to be someone who is further along, who has more followers, who has bigger audience. You know, I've definitely looked at my background and, you know, felt sorry for myself that like, oh, I wish I were more this. I wish I were more that. If only I had taken this job back then instead of this other job, I would be so much further along. And it's so hard not to compare yourself with your peers. One thing that's that's really helped me is this framework that I call turning bugs into features. So the idea there is whatever negative thing that you see about yourself or any error or liability or disadvantage that you see something that you normally would want to gloss over. What if you swung the pendulum and assumed that it was a strength instead, that it was actually an asset, that it was actually a feature? So the idea of turning bugs into features is kind of a, a joke in engineering and software development where you know there's, there's an error on a site and engineers like, oh, that's, that's, a bu- that's a feature, right? It's not a bug. It's supposed to be there. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's supposed to be there. Um, so that's not, not so really always the case. Um, in engineering, but I think with with being a creator, with marketers, with builders, that is absolutely something that we should get in the habit of doing. I personally do this all the time. Early on in my journey, I, I thought that being an introvert was a bug. I would see all these other leaders who it just looked like they were so natural, talking to people, sharing on stage, networking, building relationships. And, you know, and as a founder too, I thought that like, oh, like if I were more extroverted, I'd I'd be so much further along. And then I have to pause and say, okay, wait, let's turn a bug into a feature here. And when I do that, I realize that the fact that I am introverted has contributed to where I am today and Mm -hmm. has 
allowed me to have a different perspective than a lot of other leaders who are extroverted. It's allowed me to connect with our customers in a different way. Surprisingly, a lot of creators who seem very extroverted are actually in their personal lives more introverted than you might think. So the pitching style, sales style, you know, building relationships for Maven has, it's, it's been useful because I can connect with them in that way. I can relate to them. And so this is just one example where, you know, before I was kind of lamenting my circumstances and lamenting my personality. Um, and then it was like, wait, wait a minute, let me turn this into a feature. And it really goes for anything that you are doing, whether it's a product that you're selling and, you know, you think, oh, my product is too simple. It doesn't have enough features. Everyone's going to complain that, you know, it doesn't do enough, you know, turn that into a feature. Say that this is a product that does one thing and one thing really well. You know, mm -hmm. I personally don't consider myself in the bucket of super tech savvy people and hate when, when apps or, or, or products have too many features. It's too, it's too complicated. And I can't figure out the one thing that I'm trying to do. So position it as something that's simple on purpose and good at really good at one thing and vice right. versa. You know, if your product is more full, you know, full and robust and has, uh, you know, a bunch of ways to customize, turn that into a feature, say that this is for, um, users who want a lot of customization, who want a lot of control, who want to bring their vision to life exactly the way that they want to do it. And so there is, you know, it is more complex and that gives you more detailed and precise um, control, right? Like that's, that's for a different customer. So, you know, whether it's for yourself or your product, I see this coming in handy so much as a creator. I really, really like that because it's something not only that I need to hear myself, <laughs> especially when, I mean, we're right now going through like a fundraising process. So, you know, we're pitching to a lot of angel investors and we've spoken to some like VC firms. And so for me, it's one of those things where I need to perfect the story. I need to perfect the pitch. I need to perfect exactly what we're going to say and have the exact like tone and messaging that we need to to convey to like the people that are are listening and that we're presenting to. And so I like using that perspective of, you know, turning those bugs into features and kind of reframing the your mindset and reframing kind of the the way that you tell a story. Did you get training with that or is that something that kind of you've just thought of and like you've you've stuck with and it's helped you along the way or or was that like advice that someone gave you were you ever like in a in a course or training program where they kind of like taught you that or was it is it just like your own? I've been obsessed with the idea of framing and positioning for decades. I think actually, even since I was a child, I was just shocked at how if you explain things differently, people reacted completely differently based on mm -hmm. how you how you explain your thought process, you know what what narrative you went with. Um, and I think you know, as I went along in my career, I just saw it more and more um, with with every role that I was in. And so this idea of owning a frame, turning bucks into features, positioning your ideas proactively, um, is something that is, it's so deeply ingrained in my cells, like on a cellular level. It's like, there's not any single one book. It's like 20 years of thinking about this and obsessing about it, agonizing about it in many ways. So a lot of, a lot of these frameworks that, that I think of are to solve my own problems, really. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like something that I'm struggling with. And I, you know, at a certain point, sometimes you get tired of having the same problems and you're like, mm -hmm. shit, like, how can I just solve this and stop dealing with, with, uh, with this challenge? And, you know, I think, I think one really formative, um, experience was in my early career, my first few jobs, I assumed that if I had a good idea and I just said it, people would realize that it was a great idea and give me a pat on the back and give me, you know, all the kudos that I deserved. And I was always shocked and, and frustrated and disappointed and resentful when 
I said my great idea and people just like didn't really get it or like didn't really care or uh, weren't bought in. And I realized at a certain point that it's my responsibility to help people care. It's mm-hmm. our responsibility as the builder, as the creator, as the marketer, the business owner to help other people see why what we're saying is important. If you don't own that frame and proactively shape how they're going to interpret what you're saying, you're just leaving it up to chance. And people are not going to interpret things the way that you want to interpret it, right? Which is why that Turning Bucks Features uh, framework is so important because if you just said something as a standalone fact, a lot of times people are not sure if something is good or bad. I don't know if that's ever happened to you where someone tells you something and you're like, is that good or bad? Like, I can't tell, right? Like, I don't have enough context or enough knowledge on this thing to know if this is actually good news or bad news. I think surprisingly, that happens more often than you might think. And so Mm -hmm. really being proactive to frame that this is a good thing. And here's why, right? Like, making sure that whatever it is that you're doing, especially if you're doing it anyway, framing that proactively is so much better for your, your recipient. And it's also better for you because you're more likely to get a yes. I have one example here, you know, for, for anyone who's, who's working in house uh, and, and has a boss, you could say, you know, I don't want to do a 10 page write up. That's going to take too long. It's a lot of work, right? Like your boss doesn't want to hear that. Like that's right. not a good reason for not doing something. But if you say, Hey, I could definitely do a 10 page write up. I think a one page executive summary would better help you understand the gist of this project and save your time from reading this long convoluted thing. Cause I know you're super busy what if I put together a one pager? Your boss yes. is going to love that way more. So the actual activity is still the same, right? The, the uh, you know, the 10 page or some kind of write up, but you turned a bug into a feature before it was like, you're lazy. You didn't want to do a 10 pager. Right. And then now it's a feature. The fact that you are being thoughtful to your boss about making sure that they're not having to, to slog through this super long thing that they probably don't want to read and don't have time for that's turning that into a feature. And that's going to make your audience so much more excited to hear what it is that, that you have to say, whether your audience is your boss, your, you know, your, your followers, your community, uh, uh, VC, uh, it really applies for everything. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to start using that framework from now on. Like I'm always going to be thinking like, okay, how do I turn this bug into a feature? Because I think it's so powerful And if you haven't already, I totally think you should start a cohort on like reframing your mind and like changing like just frameworks that you can kind of shape your mind into becoming a more confident person, become getting stuff done or whatever you want to spin it. You're better at the marketing and the the reframing than I am. But I think that that would be great. And I would totally sign up for it because I think that those things are so much more powerful. And I mean, like you said that you've been obsessed with this for 20 years. And so you've been, you know, reframing you're using this framework for so long and so I think that it's one of those things that can once people hear it it sticks with them forever so very I I I love it before we go I also wanted to ask you where you think the creator economy or future of content creation is headed because you are so involved in it you know you are a founder of a company that is really immersed in it you've been you know a content creator as well do you where do you think it it heads into the future I think we're heading into a future where creators can make a thriving living, mm-hmm. not just eking by scraping together small, you know, sponsorships that they can get, or, you know, stressing about content creation, what video is going out the next week, what newsletter is going out the next week, 
I think that there are more platforms and tools than ever before that are geared towards helping creators succeed. And there's more appetite from an audience perspective of wanting to interact directly with your favorite creators and uh, and interact with them in different ways, mm-hmm. not just uh, on whatever channel you might know someone from. So you might follow someone on YouTube, you might follow someone on Instagram. Now you have a chance to potentially be in a membership group with them, uh, you know, a monthly call or a chance to see their newest content first, or you might be able to learn from them directly in a core-based course. So there's so many different options for creators to monetize their expertise. That's going to usher in a new era where creators can really make a, a, an exciting, thriving living, doing exactly what they love doing. Yeah, I, I totally see that happening. And I think that now more than ever, like, you know, you don't need to be super famous on social media to to create a living, which was kind of the narrative beforehand. And it was kind of the opportunity beforehand. It was like, I would always get questions like, how many followers do I need to, to take this full time? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not necessarily the n- amount of followers. It's more about, you know, who you have following you. But um, I think that before it was, it was very much like brand deals or you don't get paid. Like you had to rely on so many other external factors, not just the content that you produce. And I think that now that's totally changing and Maven is going to be one of those things that really helps pave the way for creators. So I think that's so exciting. And I'm about to go and sign up for a course or try to sign up for the beta version because I am, I would love, I love it. One. I'm, I'm always like looking for new ways to learn. And like you said, piecing together articles and YouTube videos is just not helpful. And it's honestly more stressful and time consuming that like, I don't want to do it. So I'm, I'm going to sign up for sure. But where can they find you and where can uh, our listeners find Maven also? On Twitter, we're at Maven HQ. I'm at Wes underscore KO and then maven.com and westko.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Wes, for coming on my podcast. This was such a amazing episode. And like, it's honestly taught me, I think so much. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed and don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey, my name is Lovan Rumpf and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here. And vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.